what? No, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. Not. No, no, no. I don't have those kind of skills. I'll do it if you get up here with me, Randy. No, 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 no. Don't do it. Randy would do it. Randy would do it. I'll tell you. It's, it, I, I got a tall act to follow after Mira. I mean, she killed it, didn't she? I mean, just incredible. Really. Aren't you proud of our kids? Man, we have amazing young people. And I just, I love our kids' ministry, uh, having two kids of my own. Um, seeing them come up in our kids' ministry has meant the world to me and my wife. And um, they love coming to church. And I don't think there's a greater testimony than that, that when you have teenagers and you don't have to make them go to church. Like if we're tired on a Sunday and it's like, you know, vertical rolls around, they're like, come on, we got to go. We're going to be late. Like they're pulling us out of the door. Like we got to get to vertical. Like I love that, that our kids love being in the house of God. Don't you? Awesome. Well, my name is Olin Carter. I serve here on our teaching team. If you're new to Freedom House Church, um, it's something very special about our church that I love is that although we have multiple campuses, we have a live communicator, a pastor bringing God's word live in the flesh at all of our campuses every week, every service, which is a big part of our pastor's vision. I love that. So can we give some honor to our senior pastors? Troy, Penny, Max, we'll give them a hand clap. I love them so much for that vision. Um, it's incredible, incredible. And um, you guys have some pretty awesome campus pastors as well. Give it up for your campus pastors. I texted them the other day, just some encouragement, just, just tell them I think they're just amazing pastors. And the thing I told them is, you know, I don't think I ever have a conversation with them that they're not concerned about someone else's spiritual growth and health. And that's the true heart of a pastor. Amen. Sometimes they give you a little love shove, like Pastor Stephanie getting my wife up here this morning. My wife does not like to be in front of people. She was like, I don't want to do it. And Pastor Stephanie would just give you that little shove. But you know, we need that sometimes in our life, amen? Need a pastor to give us that little love shove. Well, hey, before we jump into God's word, I want to make sure we uh, say a, a huge hello and welcome to our online campus. We have people joining us right now in North Carolina, Georgia, New York, Hawaii, and Ohio. You guys give it up for them. Out there suffering for Jesus in Hawaii. I'm sure it's terrible. Just a rough life. But hey, we're so glad you're with us today. And um, we're in the middle of an amazing series on the book of John. Now, a little quiz. Who can remember this whole summer we're doing books of the Bible? Where did we start in June? Romans. That's right. Somebody got it wrong in the first service. Someone messed it up. Someone on our staff might have to dock their pay. I tell you, they got it wrong. Who remembers what we did in July? James. James. And now we're doing the book of John, which is just incredible. Um, great book. If you, if you ever um, are talking to someone, maybe they're new to Jesus or they're, they're interested in learning about Jesus and, and what it means to be a Christian, John, the book of John, great place to start. It's, it's the um, evangelistic gospel. John tells us in um, chapter 20, verse 31, that the, the purpose of the book, why did he write this gospel? He said, it's written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Isn't that good? So that's the, he, he puts it right out there. That's why the book is written, to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. Something that I think is interesting about John um, it's the evangelistic gospel. It's there to share the gospel with people. But you know the word repent or repentance is not in the book. But you'll find the word believe about a thousand times. Because it's, it's focused not on so much what we need to do, but on what God did for us. 
that Jesus came to save us. So amazing gospel. So we're gonna, we're gonna dig in today. If you're taking some notes, which I encourage you to do, um, if I were gonna entitle this something, this message today, it would be when the wine runs out. When the wine runs out. We're gonna pick this up in John chapter two. Um, we're gonna read this story. This is Jesus' first miracle. John chapter two, Jesus' first miracle that he ever performed. John two, starting in verse one. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman. (laughs) If I would have looked at my mama and said, woman, I would have had to duck. Run. He says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master Of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, which is just the groom. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. When and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the, the sign, the first sign of, the first of his signs, excuse me, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested or showed or displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. I don't know about you, but if you're going to have a wedding, probably a good idea to invite Jesus. Can I get an Amen. If you're going to have a wedding, you better invite Jesus. You should have Jesus at your wedding. You know, weddings are joyful occasions, especially in Jesus' day. They were a big deal. But if you've ever been to a wedding before, something always goes wrong. Always goes wrong. Maybe the band doesn't show up. Maybe the preacher's drunk. I mean, you never know, right? I just actually officiated my first wedding that I've ever done. Yep. Thank you. I was sober and everything. I, I made it through the whole deal, but something always goes wrong at a wedding. We had a little snafu. I mean, there's always something that goes sideways at a wedding. I heard a pastor telling the story the other day, and he was talking about his own wedding. He was a young man um, and, uh, you know, wasn't very experienced with how weddings go and things like that. And so he got his tuxedo, got his shoes, got everything, and he had went in and got measured, and he thought, you know, they're professionals. It's a you know, this is what they do. They measure me. They got, I'm sure everything's fine. So he just picked his clothes up the morning of the wedding, went straight to the site, the venue for the wedding. He gets there and he starts to try on his clothes. And he said, his shoes were at least two sizes too small, maybe worse. He said, his toes were curled up like claws inside of his shoes. He said, the whole wedding, everybody thought he was really emotional. He said, really, I was just in so much pain. He was like, please let it in. Like, I just wanted it to be over. He was crying because he was in so much pain. But if you've ever been a part of a wedding, 
man, something always goes wrong. It always goes sideways. And weddings in Jesus's day were a huge deal. They were such a big deal. The theologians, historians tell us that the wedding celebration typically lasted for days on end. Most typical, they would last an entire week. They would have a processional, like a march through the town or the village, and the groom would lead out that morning with some family friends, and they would have instruments and noisemakers and a drum. They would, they would march through this village, and these villages weren't big. I mean, 100, 200, 300 people tops. And so they're marching through the town, shouting out, and everybody's, you know, just, just celebrating the couple and celebrating what's going to happen that day. So everyone in the town knew you were getting married that day. They knew it was a public affair. It was a big, big deal. And unlike today, the custom was not for the family of the bride to cover the cost of the wedding. It was actually the responsibility of the groom to pay and to make provisions for the wedding. And so the groom had to make sure there was food to eat, there was wine to drink, he had to make sure there was enough to last. That was the responsibility of the groom. And so in this wedding, when the wine ran out, it was a big deal. It was an enormous problem. It was a huge deal. It was so serious that in that day, it could even be grounds for a lawsuit. The family of the bride could take the groom to court and sue him for not making proper preparations. At the very least, it was a huge embarrassment, a humiliation that this groom would never live down. I mean, how can this guy provide for this young lady, protect her, provide a home for her if he can't even handle his own wedding? He can't even provide wine at his own wedding. And isn't that what all of us as fathers are worried about? Got any dads in the house today? Man, my daughter's getting bigger. She's getting, she's getting older and I see these little boys looking at her and I'm just buying ammo, man. I'm just stocking up on ammunition, <laughs> buying ammo, just stockpiling it, you know? And they better come right, because if they don't, I'm going to handle it. I'm going to handle it. And listen, they'll never find the body. Because I'm sneaky when I need to be, right? But as a dad, isn't that what you worry about? You worry about this young man. Is he going to be able to take care of my daughter? Is he going to have a job? Is he going to be able to provide a home? Is he going to be able to take care of a family? And don't you know that this young man, this groom at this wedding was sitting there nervous as he could be, probably looking over at the dad, the, the, the father of the bride, like, does he know yet? Does anybody told him? Does he know we're out of wine? Hey. And, you know, he's probably smiling at him like, we're good. Everything's great. You know, does he know? Does he know? You know, he had to be scared to death. Had to be scared to death. So what do we do when the wine runs out? Well, Mary sets a great example for us all. Mary sets this great example. When, whenever we have a lack, an insufficiency in our life, we're to bring it to Jesus. We're to bring it to Jesus. We must bring Jesus our insufficiency. I think the first thing we learn from this incredible miracle today is that no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, eventually, you're going to run out of wine. You're going to run out of wine. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your health. Maybe it's in your finances. You, you don't know where it's going to come, when it's going to come. But I guarantee you this. You live on this earth long enough, you are going to run out of wine. There's going to be an area in your life where you're facing embarrassment, humiliation, 
failure. It's going to come no matter what you do, no matter how many boxes you check, no matter how much you prepare. Have you ever felt like before in your life you did all the right things and it just didn't work out? Like you checked all the boxes. You, you, you went on the job interview. You wore your best clothes. You, check, I mean, you did everything. You did your resume. You had a great reference and all this thing. You still didn't get the job, right? You did everything you were supposed to do. Sometimes in our relationships, we do everything we think we're supposed to do, and yet we still find ourselves with the wine running out. And maybe today you feel like in your life you failed. Maybe you feel like you failed God. Maybe I think sometimes the harder thing for us is we feel like we failed people that we love and we care about. Nothing worse than a parent feeling like you failed your children. Feeling like you've failed your spouse. Maybe you feel that way today. Maybe you feel like you failed yourself. Aren't you glad that Jesus is here today? I know that groom was really glad Jesus attended his wedding. I know he had to be glad, but aren't you glad that Jesus is here today? We're in the house of God. Jesus is here today. And whatever that thing is in your life, Jesus is here and you can bring it to him today. See, I believe that's the reason why God had me preach and and teach today on this miracle, this section of scripture. Because originally in our teaching team, we kind of talk about, you know, what we're going to talk about, what we're going to teach on. And originally I had said, hey, I think I'm going to preach on John chapter 3. And as I read through John, I kept reading it, reading it, reading it. I I couldn't get past John 2. Like God just kept bringing me back to this story because I believe that there's some of us in this room today, maybe some of us watching online, and we've been holding on to something for a long time. Maybe we feel like the shoe's about to drop. Maybe it's something in your past. Maybe it's a sin you've been hiding. Maybe it's a struggle in your life, and you feel like it's about to break. Everybody's about to find out. I'm about to be humiliated. You ever felt like that before? I've had many times in my life. And sometimes as believers, as Christians, we hold on to those things and we hold them back from God. We refuse to give them over. We've determined that we're going to solve the problem ourselves. And I think the Spirit of the Lord is here today and He wants to to touch some of you. He wants you to open up your heart and that thing that you've just decided you're going to fix, you're going to carry, you're going to handle yourself, he wants you to let it go. He wants you to walk out of here today with some freedom, with some newness of life. Mary comes to Jesus. She simply says, they have no wine. Now, what caused the shortage? Why did they run out of wine? What What caused them to be short? Isn't that the question we always want to answer? Whenever things are running the wrong direction in our life, when when there's a struggle, when there's something I'm embarrassed about, I'm ashamed of, I'm afraid of, whenever I'm in that situation in my life, the first thing we do is we ask why. Whose fault is it? We want somebody to blame, don't you? I know I do. When things aren't right in my life, I want to know whose fault it is. I want to know who I can point my finger at. This has to be somebody's fault. And it's really heavy when we start to suspect that maybe that person is me. Maybe I'm the one to blame. Isn't that always the question we ask? But you notice in this story that Jesus doesn't ask. Jesus doesn't ask whose fault it is because 
He doesn't need you to justify yourself, and he is not interested in condemning you. Jesus didn't look for who was to blame. He didn't ask, well, how in the world could they run out of wine? They knew it was going to last a week. I mean, didn't this young man make preparation? Didn't he know that all these people were going to be here? I mean, why? Why are we here? Why are we facing this problem? Jesus didn't ask. He didn't ask why they didn't buy more. He didn't ask whose fault it was. What was his response? Now, I know you've all been waiting to get here. His response was, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. I don't know about you, but if I would have looked at my mama and said, woman, holy smokes, right? I mean, I'd have been running for cover. But let me help you here. In, in that in that culture and in that language, what Jesus is saying, he's not being disrespectful to his mother. It would be the equivalent of saying ma'am or madam. Now, it isn't affectionate. He's not saying mom. It's not, it's not warm. It's not affectionate. It's very formal. Jesus is kind of challenging Mary a little bit here. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Really what Jesus is saying is, how is this connected to my mission, to my purpose as Messiah? You see, what Jesus is doing is he's forcing Mary to relate to him, not as her son, but as her savior. Imagine those of you who are mothers in this room and you've carried this baby for nine months and you've nursed this baby and you've You've nurtured this baby and you've watched him grow and you've protected him and you've loved him and you've fed him. How difficult must it have been for Mary to now relate to Jesus, not as son, but as Savior, as Christ, as Lord. That had to be incredibly hard, incredibly difficult for Mary to look at this young man who she has raised from a baby and to look at him and relate to him as God, as Christ. So hard. And so often in scripture, Jesus challenges people in their perspective. Their perspective of him, their perspective of God, their perspective of faith. I think of the Syrophoenician woman. She comes to Jesus and she says, Lord, Lord, help me. My daughter has a demon and I need your help. And what is Jesus' reply? Oh, yeah, of course, come here and I'll, I'll help you. No, he says, should I take the, children, the children's bread and give it to the dogs? I mean, can you imagine if he said that today? He'd be trending right now on Instagram, Twitter. It'd be on CNN. Jesus calls woman dog. I mean, that was kind of harsh, wasn't it? He says, should I give the children's bread to the dogs, and the woman responds, knowing that her faith is being challenged, she responds and says, yeah, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. What she was saying is, I might not be a Jew, I might not be in that covenant, but even the crumbs of your power is enough to heal my daughter. Even the crumbs, because she had a revelation of who Jesus was. She says, I don't need the whole thing. Just give me the crumbs that are left over. That'll be more than enough for me because I know who you are, Jesus. I know the reality of who you are. And what did Jesus do? The daughter was made whole. Think about the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus. Very reasonable request. I think most of us have had this request in our lives. Hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to go to heaven? 
simple request, reasonable request. I mean, we spend a lot of our church life answering that question, talking about that question. But Jesus kind of confronts the young man. He says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. He tells the young man, you, you know what to do. Just do the commandments. The young man, he's, he's in his pride. He's in his self. He's in the old. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done all that. I've, I've read all that. I've, I follow all the rules. I followed all the commandments. Jesus, good, 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 good. Hey, listen, just one thing then. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. What does the young man do? He walks away sad because he had many possessions. See, Jesus challenges our perspective. He challenges our faith because he wants that faith to wake up, to come alive in us. And he understood in Mary that Mary couldn't receive from God through her son. She had to receive from God through her Savior. So he challenges the way she views him. And Mary's response is maybe the greatest faith response in all of history, all of the Bible. She says five words. She says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Can you see Mary's face when she says this? You know she had a sly little smile on her face. Like, just do what he tells you to do. Just, just whatever he tells you, just do it. Because she knew something big was about to happen. Mary had an expectation. She knew something big was about to happen because this was the day that Mary had been waiting for for 30 years. See, Mary, we know Mary was a what when she had Jesus? She was a, a virgin, but no one else knew that. I mean, how do you prove that to people, right? You know, people were talking, people were gossiping, people were, oh, look at her, you know, you know her and Joseph got married, but you know, she was pregnant before. I mean, the time, I mean, we know she says it's from God. Sure. Sure, right? I mean, she'd been judged. She'd been talked about. And for 30 years, she's had this expectation that her son was going to become her savior. This expectation that Jesus was going to have this mission from God. He was going to do something. Don't you know she was frustrated sometimes? I mean, Jesus, it was a carpenter. He's, he's 28, 29 years old. And if I'm married, it's like, son, that's the greatest table I've ever seen in my life. But I was expecting a little more, right? Like virgin birth. Like I was expecting miracles and seas parting and like, you know what I mean? And, and he's making chairs and tables for people. It's like, Come on, like, let's get this thing going. You know, Mary was ready. And at this moment, Jesus is giving her the nod. He's letting her know it's time. No longer am I son, now I'm savior. It's time for me to be about the mission. And you know, in that moment, Mary had to get real excited. Inside of her, she's like, they're all going to find out. <laughs> They're all going to find out I really was a virgin. They're going to find out he really is the one. They're going to find out what my son can do. They're going to find out. And when she looked at the servants, her face beaming with excitement and expectation, she looks at them and says, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Just do it. Because she knew something big was coming. What do we do when the wine runs out? We do what Mary did. We bring our insufficiency to Jesus and then Mary made sure that Jesus would get the glory. Mary made sure that Jesus would get the glory. If your situation was worked out today, let me ask you, would Jesus get the glory? Have you positioned it so that Jesus would get 
the glory. Maybe it's a medical problem and you're going to a doctor. and That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But have you positioned it to where Jesus will get the glory? In your family, in your relationships, I don't know what you're going through, but have you positioned it so that Jesus will get the glory? See, if you haven't gone to God and given the problem to him, he can't get the glory from it. And so Mary brings the insufficiency to Jesus. She just simply says, hey, they're out of wine. They're out of wine. She makes it Jesus' problem. Too often we carry our own problems. We walk around with a backpack, a weight filled with heavy bricks, just carrying around this issue we've had for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. We're just lugging life's tragedies behind us. And what Mary shows us is we need to take it off and just give it to God. Make it God's problem. She makes sure that Jesus will get the glory. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have anything to do. We don't have any responsibility. How do we balance out God's sovereignty with our responsibility? Probably one of the most common questions in all of Christianity. You got one side of the aisle that says, oh, just trust, it's, everything's God. God just is sovereign and he just will, if he wants to heal you, he'll heal you. If you're not healed, it's because he don't want to heal you. You got nothing to do with it. Just, you know, God's going to do what God's going to do. You know, the Lord works in mysterious ways, Right? <laughs> Then you got the other side of the aisle that's all, you know, our responsibility. Well, if you're sick, it's because you did something wrong. You're not believing enough. You don't have enough faith. You had not said enough Hail Marys. You had not read your Bible enough. You don't come to church enough. You had not tithed enough. It's all about what you do. Mary solves this problem. Is the answer, trust God or us do? Well, Mary makes it so simple. The answer is personal obedience. Personal obedience. You aren't responsible to turn the water into wine. You're just responsible to fill the water jars full of water. What were the servants told to do by Jesus? He says, see those six water jars? Fill them with water. Could they do that? Sure. God's not going to ask you to do anything you can't do. But they were never responsible. The servants didn't turn the water into wine. Jesus did. And God's not going to ask you to do something that you can't do. But too often as Christians, what happens is, see, we get stuck in our shame. See, when we first come to God and we're, we're a low-down, dirty, sinning, heathen dog, <laughs> we come into the church and we just fall upon God's grace because we, we haven't earned anything, right? I mean, I'm a sinner and I need God's grace and his forgiveness and his healing. And so we just come to the altar and we just lift our head. Oh, God, I need your grace. I need your mercy. And we just trust God that, that he'll show us that mercy. I mean, through Christ, it's like we come to the foot of the cross, this place of grace, this place where his blood was poured out for us. And we just, God, thank you for your grace. And we're forgiven and we're, we're made new. And then 10 years later, we're a Christian. We've been a Christian for 10 years. We've been coming to church. We've been reading our Bible. And now we need God's grace. Now we need God's mercy, but we don't feel like we've earned it because now I'm a Christian. Now I come to church. Now I know God's word. And if I was really obedient, if I was really in faith, if I was really a good Christian, if I really did all the things I was supposed to do, then my wine wouldn't have run out. And so we decide that the cross is for everyone else. The cross is for those sinners. The cross is for the new people. The cross is for people who don't know better. Jesus came for one reason. He came to show you this. What this miracle tells us is that you are not enough. 
You're never going to be enough. I'm not enough. You're not enough. And I don't care how many verses you read, how many church services you attend, how many tithe checks you write, you are never going to be enough. You're never going to graduate to God. You're never going to be able to solve your own problems. You're never going to be able to fix your own broken heart. You're still going to need the cross. We don't just come to the cross. We live through the cross. We need God's grace just as much today. And this is where Christians get all kind of messed up because we stop relying on God's grace and his mercy. We start looking for who's to blame and we trap ourselves in a godless life. And there's nothing worse than being a Christian and having the highest expectations of the world and trying to do it in your own strength. You're destined to fail. You're destined to live in frustration. You're destined to have an unfulfilled life, a life where you're always blaming yourself, beating yourself up. Why? Because you stopped living through the cross. So Mary, make sure Jesus is going to get the glory. Mary brings the insufficiency to Jesus and Mary demonstrated confidence in Jesus. She demonstrated confidence in Jesus. Notice that Mary didn't argue. She didn't overtalk the situation. I believe she just had a, a sly smile on her face. She just said what she said, five words, and I think she just walked away. She didn't try to twist their arms. She didn't try to argue with them. And I think many times, that's what we do. See, Mary didn't, she didn't pull the servants aside and tell them an hour-long story. See, when I was younger, an angel came to me, and he told me I was going to get pregnant, and I was, I was going to have a child, and I was a virgin. Can you buy a virgin? And I got pregnant, and these miracles happened, and then we, we, we went to Bethlehem, and then these, the, the, I mean, there was a star, and then she didn't do that, did she? She just said, hey, whatever he tells you to do, do it. She demonstrated confidence, trust in Jesus. And so often, we don't demonstrate that confidence. There's people around us we love, we care about. Sometimes I see this all the time with parents and their kids. It's so hard. I, I, I identify. I mean, it's so hard. You love your kids. You want them to do right. And so we just beg with them and plead with them. And some of you have adult kids, and they're off, and they're not living for God. And every time, it's like, you needed this, and you needed that, and you needed this, and you needed that. Well, have you prayed? Yeah. Well, what are you anxious about then? Why are you so worried? Why are you so stressed out? See, Mary didn't go, whatever he tells you, whatever. No, she just said, hey, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And it's so hard for us in our lives sometimes to bring it to God, bring it to Jesus. Maybe it's a sickness, maybe it's a problem, maybe it's your kids. But just to leave it on that altar, just to bring it to God and say, it's your problem now. I'm going to obey what you tell me to do, but it's your problem now. John gives us some important details about this miracle. There were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Each held 20 to 30 gallons, so that's 120 to 180 gallons of wine. For you wine drinkers, somebody said amen. <laughs> Jesus said to fill the jars with water, they they filled them, the story tells us, to the brim. Now, why are these details important? Why does this matter so much? Because six stone jars, it represents the limitations of man. Everywhere in Scripture where you see the number six, man was created on the sixth day. 
Six is symbolic of sin. It's symbolic of our human frailty, of our limitations. And this this whole story, this miracle sets the precedent for Jesus' ministry because he wants us to understand that we're limited in ourselves. That in ourselves we have nothing to offer God but sin and weakness and failure. 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Why is that important? Because, listen, I don't care how much they liked wine. At the end of the feast, there's probably only a day or so left. They weren't drinking 180 gallons of wine. Not going to do it. Not going to drink 180 gallons of wine. And so what this tells us is that when this feast was over, this young couple had enough wine left over. They could have sold that wine and probably lived for six months or a year. When Jesus gives you a gift, it's not a small gift. It's a lavish gift. Jesus goes to this wedding and he gives this couple a, a lavish gift, a miracle of miracles. This probably changed their lives Forget avoiding the embarrassment. When this thing was over, they were like, holy smokes, how much do we have left? It was an incredible miracle in what God has for you. It's not small. It's not mediocre. No, it's lavish. God wants to bless your life in a lavish way. You're his child. He wants to heap blessing on you. He didn't come just to forgive us of some of our sins, just to help us out. No, he came to totally and completely remove your sin from you. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, he will remember them no more. He came to make us a new creature in Christ, brand new species of being. He came to give you an eternity with God. He came to bless you from the top of your head to the soles of your feet, everything you touch, everywhere you go, he came to bless it. He gives us lavish gifts. That's our dad. That's who he is. Jesus said to fill the water jars with water. It made no sense, but yet they obeyed. And often your miracle is going to be tied to simple obedience, and it's not going to make any sense. Imagine these servants sitting there, and Jesus says, fill the water jugs. These were water jugs for purification purposes. They would come in and hold their hands like that and they poured the water and they had an intricate uh, ritual they went through where they did like this and they poured the water because they were unclean. They'd been out in the world touching things. This was purification water and Jesus says, they're out of wine and Jesus says, fill the, fill the water jugs with water. Um, Jesus, we're out of wine. Like what are you talking about right now? Why are we talking about water purification? Like, we're out of wine, Jesus. Like, wine. We drink. We're out of wine. Like, it made no sense. But they obeyed. They obeyed what Jesus told them to do. The Bible says they filled them to the brim. John wants us to know that this wasn't some magic trick. It wasn't some sleight of hand. There wasn't a little bit of wine in them, and they just watered it down. No, they were 100% full, nothing but water. This was a bona fide miracle. So they take the water, turned wine to the master of the feast. He says that everybody serves the best wine first. And then once people get a little, you know, they've had a little bit too much to drink. Now, I personally don't know what that means. But the Lord assured me some of you in here understand that. (laughs) It's like, I guess when you drink a lot of wine, you stop caring what the wine tastes like or something. I don't know. I don't know, Randy. But the Lord told me that there are people here that understand it, that get that reference. But apparently, once you've drank a lot of wine, you don't care what the wine tastes like anymore. And the the master of the feast says, hey, most people, they save 
the, the poor wine until last because no one cares. But he tells the groom, you've saved the best wine until now. And is it any surprise that anything Jesus touches gets better? Anything Jesus touches gets gooder. It's going to be the best. It's going to be great because Jesus got involved. Jesus takes the water, the old, the lack, the sin, the past, the tragedy, the pain, and he transforms it into the new, the wine, symbolic of joy, newness of life, God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's miracle-working power, God's blessing. He transforms it. Jesus not only turns the water into wine, he turns it into great wine. And this tells us in our lives that when we'll let it go, when we'll give it to God, whatever that thing may be for you, when we bring it to God, when we let it go, he will transform it into something great. He will multiply it. He will resurrect it. He will change it. He will make it into something great. What this story tells us is that we can trust Jesus with every part of our life. Running out of wine in this story was really, if you think about it, it was the greatest thing that could have ever happened. It's the greatest thing that could have ever happened. Because had the wine not run out, they'd have never brought it to Jesus and they'd still be drinking the cheap stuff. They'd still be drinking the old stuff. And this Miracle is the first miracle of Jesus because it sets the template for his entire ministry. Why did Jesus come? Because he wanted to save us from the old and bring us into the new. You know, the Jewish people, they were content with the law. They were content with making sacrifices and trying to work their way to God. But Jesus came to show us there's a better way. You don't have to go by the old anymore. You don't have to be captive under the law. No, I've come to make things new. And it makes me think of Jesus's, his most famous sermon. How does he start it out? Matthew chapter five, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for they will inherit the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying, blessed are those who realize they're out of wine. Blessed are you when you realize your spiritual poverty because until you realize you're poor, you're not even eligible for heaven. You're not eligible to believe God. You're not eligible to come to a Savior until you realize you've run out of wine, that you can't do it on your own, that you're never going to be enough. Aren't you glad he's enough today? He's more than enough. He's here today. How did John finish this amazing miracle story? What's his point? He says this first miracle was done to do what? To manifest, to display the glory of Jesus. To show us, to pull the curtain back and to show us the glory of Jesus. And what happened? And it says, and his disciples believed in him. When I first read this story, the thing that jumped out at me the most was the fact that sometimes we think the problem in the world is that the world doesn't believe in Jesus. But what the Lord showed me is that's not the problem at all. The problem is his disciples don't believe. See, Jesus came and he did this miracle. Why? To build the faith of his disciples. Jesus spent three years of ministry doing what? Pouring in most of his time and energy into 12 uneducated nobodies. 
12 disciples because he knew he could have floated over Rome and taken over the world. But he doesn't work that way. He works through me, he works through you. And he knows if he can get our heart, if he can cause us to believe, if he can show us his glory. So in a moment, we stand up as a true disciple and say, whatever he says to do, I'm gonna do it. Man, he knew only 12 people that could believe like that could change the world. And they did. I don't know about you, but I want to be a disciple. I want to be like Mary. I want to bring my insufficiency to God. I want to be like Mary. I want to make sure he gets all the glory for what he's done. Pastor Stephanie had Tammy come up at the end of worship and share with you something that we've personally been going through in our family, battle with cancer. I don't have time today to go into all of it. I'm sure we'll share more details at some point, but we had lots of people praying, lots of people caring for us, and it was much appreciated. But when Tammy was going through her fight, the thing that the Lord continually showed me was this. Don't try to fix it. It's her fight. So I encouraged her because I knew she had to stand on her own two feet. See, Pastor Troy says it a lot that, you know, my faith will work for you sometimes, but your faith will work for you every time. She would ask me, what should I do? I say, I don't know, what should you do? We'd pray together and I'd encourage her, but I made sure because the Lord showed me, don't try to do it for her because I could, you know, kind of get in my pride and say, I'm gonna fix this, I'm gonna handle this. The other thing is the Lord gave us a practical step. He told us to pour some water into some jars. Now for us, what that looked like was God said, every morning, every day, until she's cancer free, you're gonna take communion together. So every day, we'd wake up. And even if I was on a trip with Pastor Troy, even if I was out of town, I would call her. And we would take some juice and we would take a cracker. And we would take communion together because we had to remember that we were never going to be enough. But he already was. See, he'd already paid the price for her healing. And all we had to do was keep our eyes on Jesus. And I knew the day would come when she would be cancer free. big difference between having faith in your faith and faith in him sometimes we doubt we're not doubting God we're doubting ourselves. and what God wants you to know to, today is that it's not so much about you how good you can believe how many scriptures you can quote it's about simple childlike trust will you do whatever he tells you to do I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. Don't stand up yet. I want you to just bow your heads. I want you to think about this for a minute. What is God telling you to do? What is God telling you to do? There's some of you in here and God's been telling you some things to do. There's been something that he's wanted you to let go of. There's been something he's wanted you to bring to the altar. There's been something he's wanted you to share with someone. There's been something he's wanted you to let go of you haven't brought it to him. And usually his 
requests are simple, but they're hard. <laughs> they're not complex. It's I want you to forgive that person. I want you to go to them. I want you to say I'm sorry. It's I want you to, to say this prayer. I want you to start giving, tithing, whatever it may be. Whatever that thing is in your life, do you have it? Do you know what God has been asking of you? And maybe for some of you, this is your first time sitting in church in a while and you know God's been pulling at your heart. You've never given him your life. You've never, you've never professed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And maybe he's been tugging at your heart and you're like, man, I know I need to get right with God. I know I need to get right with God, but I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it a month from now. I'll do it when I'm ready. Can I just tell you, you're not promised tomorrow. Do it now. Today is the day. And if you feel the Holy Spirit, don't do it because I'm asking you. But if you feel the Holy Spirit in this place, if there's a tug at your heart, if there's something that you've been holding back from God, I believe today is the day for you to get free. Now, if you have that thing, right now I want you to stand on your feet. Stand on your feet. And those of us that are online, joining us online, if you have something... There's a button you can click. If you want to pray to receive Jesus, if you want to pray to get free from something in your life, we have people that will connect with you, pray with you, we love you. But if that's you today, let's pray this prayer in faith. And I want to invite everybody to join with me when we pray this. Say, Father God, I know I'm not enough. I bring it to you. I ask you for your miracle working power to make me new. I'm not worried about the thing not worried about my past. I know you can turn water into wine. Change me today. Make me new. Heal me. Do your work. I trust you with it. And I'll give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.